Welcome to the Film Illiterates Podcast, your home for uninformed, unfiltered, ill-advised movie talk. I'm your host, as usual, Joe Campbell, and joining me today, also as usual, are Alex Patton. Hello. And Nathan Stone. <clears throat> Hello, Joe Campbell. Do you want to play a game? Uh, the only way to win the game is not to play, though, but to know. I don't want to play. That is a valid answer, but I will override it. <laughs> Um, so here we are again with uh, another pick a flick. This time, Nate uh, chose War Games. War Games, yes. The uh, 1983 classic starring uh, that kid who went on to be in the producer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you said that, not Ferris Bueller. <laughs> Matthew Broderick. Is it weird that 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 watching this movie this time, uh, I didn't think of him as Ferris Bueller. I kept on thinking of him as like, oh, he's the guy who went on to be the producers. I have no idea why. Yeah, that is odd. Yeah. I mean, honestly, looking at this, it's like this was before he did Ferris Bueller, and I'm watching his performance. And I'm like, how did he get famous again? It's <laughs> so weird and nerdy. Uh, yes, yes, it's a very, very, very nerdy movie. But we'll get into all that. But before we start this episode, uh, let's. Let's get into what we've been watching on our own recently. Um, Nate, since it's your pick of flick, why don't you go first? All righty. Uh, so I've had a chance to actually finally sit down and binge watch all the rest of BoJack Horseman. And let me just say, I think this is actually one of the best shows out there from beginning to end. Um, this had the potential of going on for further seasons and you know continue the story. But however, everything wraps up so perfectly in this last sixth season. Um there was a lot of surprises, a lot of um, unexpected things that happened, but everything was done very well. And I think overall, the message that it's trying to say about these characters and the journeys they've been on is actually good. I think it was kind of a little rushed because I could feel some of the, the pacing of a lot of character decisions seemed rushed, but I could understand why, because it's like, well, we only got like eight more episodes before we have to you know, say goodbye. So let's do this right. And it was good. I think um, th my only fear was like, I was afraid like they were going to stretch it out or bring back issues. There was this one character that, you know, was part of like the previous season. And I thought, okay, I thought like, okay, they put that to rest. That was good. But then they brought it back and it was actually what was needed for the show. I was like, okay, this is, this is good. But I can't praise this show enough for its writing. This, this is some really good writing. Um, it's just one of those you know, shows that it, once you get past the weird premise, it's good. Like some really good character development. Oh, I forgot to crack my beer one second. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, I'm not saying I want to follow Bojack's example, but I think uh, I like the characters and I like him and uh, kudos to the show. Well, now that it's over, maybe I'll um, pick it up so I get completely caught up on Better Call Saul. Um, honestly, there is another show I'm starting to get into. Yeah, The Mandalorian. Wait, you haven't I, watched it yet? No, I was I was trying to hold off for as long as I could, but I caved. I got Disney Plus. Gosh dang it! And this show, oh gosh dang it! This show is good. It's so good. <laughs> I'm only in the first episode, but dang it, this is good. This is like everything that every Star Wars fan has been building up to. I'm like. Oh my gosh, okay. I guess I heard it from enough people and they all were twisting my arm enough to say, you know what, you're missing out one of the best things that ever come out in the past few years. I'm like, okay, fine, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do no, it. No, seriously, the, um, um, uh, Katie and I have been keeping up on the uh, Star Trek Picard show and it's just, it's, it's, it's so depressing watching that after having seen The Mandalorian and, and just, just knowing like, oh man, The Mandalorian, is so good it does this kind of show that picard is trying to do but it does it so much better it does the kind of overarching story over 10 episodes but it also has little individual episodes where they kind of do their own thing and it, it does it so much more well whereas picard is trying to do the same sort of thing and it's just a mess <laughs> yeah i guess when you just have the right people or the right team or disney behind you uh it's uh it's bound to be good i, I had almost forgotten to watch to watch it because i was waiting until the season was over to use like whatever free trial of Disney plus I can get. And after the baby Yoda memes died down, I kind of forgot about it. So I need to go back and actually watch it now. I mean, honestly, like I said, I've only watched just one episode, of the first pilot episode and I'm hooked. I'm really hooked. So <laughs> I no spoilers, please. Cause now I'm kind of like, I'm invested. I'm in. 
Well, I can't wait to check in next next podcast episode and see uh, see see how your Mandalorian watch is going. Probably be done with it. I mean, it's only eight <laughs> episodes so far for the season, so it's not going to be too bad. So we'll see. And then last but not least, I actually also watched a movie kind of related to what we are watching tonight about the Cold War called Cold War. Um, this was this is a movie came out in uh, 2018. It was an Amazon Studios release, but uh, it's a passionate love story between two people of different backgrounds and temperaments set against the background of the Cold War in the 1950s in Poland, Berlin, Yugoslavia, and Paris. This film depicts a impossible love story in impossible times. So this was a movie that back in 2018, it kind of snuck up on award season and a lot of people um, weren't familiar with this. I remember people were like, what, why is Cold War nominated for best director and all that? I, I did see this when it came out in theaters last year and I decided to rewatch it again. And I, I like it. The director of this is the same one who did Ida, uh, Pawel Pawkoslowski. And I don't know, his style is very similar to Robert Bresson and a lot of Jean-Luc Godard. Um, and so he shoots mostly in black and white, mostly on film stock, but his use of light and composition is just really good. And I think that it actually um, transcends even further because a big focus on this is music. Both of these characters actually come and are joined together because they're kind of like doing this touring music and dance group of like Polish folk songs. So it's interesting just to see how the music plays a part in this story. Um, I don't know. Have you guys heard of this movie at all? I remember hearing about it when it uh, it was nominated for awards, but I knew nothing about it pretty much. I didn't, and I, and I and I didn't look into it. Yeah, it's it was a bit of a sleeper film. Um, I was so kind of glad that I, I caught it when I did because it's I don't know I I like it. It's it's your typical you know bittersweet unrequited love romance that you see all the time. But I don't know the way it's handled. It's it's kind of it's done very well. And I don't know, I think I like the music in this. The music and how that's done is actually kind of clever. Um, Alex, I think you might like this because it's it really mm. brings, it does a lot of investigation with like, okay, this is what the musical styles were at the time and this is what popular was. It, it does a lot of um, historical accuracy as well because there's this one part where they're at this uh, club in France and uh, Rock Around the Clock comes on and everyone starts dancing and i'm like oh yeah that was that was the big hit back then and everybody was doing that they were throwing chairs but yeah they were doing that okay oh. yeah that, that that is something that that uh, piques my interest so it might be something worth checking out for me mm -hmm. and joe i know like how much you love robert Bresson movies so i think this is gonna be right up your alley so yeah awesome i'll have to add it to the list all right uh that is pretty much it all right alex uh, so I watched recently, a couple of days ago, I watched uh, Doctor Strange. You watched an actual movie? I watched an actual movie. I have something besides anime to talk about. <laughs> so you watched Doctor Strange, love? That's kind of cool. Doctor Strange. Oh. Just cut it right there. Okay. So did you love Doctor Strange? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was... All right. Well, that's Alex's uh, time on the podcast. Let's move on. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> it was okay. I'm not. I I probably said it before, but I'm not big into Marvel movies. They don't really do it for me. I don't even remember why I wanted to watch it. I think I was thinking of a meme I had seen about it earlier, and I was like, I don't know, I was bored, so I just threw it on. But yeah, it was okay. I think the best part about it really was the visual effects, because. Damn, they really they really nailed those. Just everything about it was really cool. Um, everything from the kind of like larger set pieces of you know the fights where they're turning New York City into this I don't even know what to call it. Just like crazy kaleidoscopes. Place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's it. That's it. It's if you mixed up Interstellar and uh, Inception and shook them up in a kaleidoscope. Yes. With enough drugs yeah. to tranquilize an elephant. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Yeah, actually. <laughs> but like the bigger set pieces like that down to like the you know like the smaller stuff of just like the little portals and whatnot. I thought that was really cool. So the, all the visual effects were incredible. Um the story itself was fine, if not a bit predictable. Um I I hated the 
like the romance subplot that was in the movie. I it just felt terrible. It was so. Forced. I was just gonna say I actually kind of agree with you. I know like there's a lot of people who are diehard Doctor Strange fans. Um, I was one of those very few Marvel fans that when I saw this, I was like, it was okay. <laughs> yeah, right. Like it's just okay. Like, I like like you're saying about the love story. It's just like Doctor Strange disappears for like presumably years and then just suddenly reappears and i think it's it's, it's like rachel it's rachel McAdams, right rachel McAdams, yep yeah and she just like falls in love with him all over again it's just like what what why because she's rachel McAdams. she was in the notebook so it's, <laughs> it's easy to pull that kind of stunt on her no offense to any mcadams fans out there <laughs> i guess so it just i it felt just dumb <laughs> so honestly so Alex, uh, I don't know if you've been keeping up on the the, uh, the recent news. You might you might have seen uh, Nick and I talking about it. Do, do you have any thoughts on the fact that Scott Derrickson, who directed Doctor Strange, was signed on to direct the sequel, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness? Then he left the project to creative differences, and now Sam Raimi is in talks to take over the movie. What are your thoughts? Oh, I'm interested. You're interested? Yeah. Do you think you're more interested with Sam Raimi on board than Scott Derrickson? Yes. I think so. Just because, just because of how I didn't really care for this one mm -hmm. that much, I would like to see Sam Raimi take on it. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I mean, obviously, me being a huge Sam Raimi fan, I my my ears instantly perked up. Uh, even though I love Scott Derrickson, I think he's a fantastic director, and I think he he has real horror chops. If if they were going for a more of a horror angle in the sequel, but uh, yeah, when I heard that news. I went from a downer like, oh, man, Scott Derrickson left to, oh, yeah. Sam Raimi's on board. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's. I'm thing. very curious to see how he's going to direct those action sequences because I want him to put that Raimi touch into it. You know, the wonderful zoom in, push, canted angles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, well, he does. He, 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 I mean, I mean, Sam Raimi knows how to, to play ball with studios, too. Oh, yeah. But I want to uh, see a lot of Evil Dead in this. I want to see a lot of Evil Dead. But well, specifically, he he worked with Disney before with uh, Oz the Great and Powerful, and you can still see his style was still peppered in there. That, so. That's true. I mean, it does uh, him working on the Spider Man series still count as like him working for Marvel Disney before that whole merger happened? Yeah, it's talking. It's still Marvel, yeah, but not necessarily Disney. That was Sony. Yeah. Uh, anyway, if you guys are done uh, dumping on the best movie in the MCU, Alex, do you have anything else to, uh, do you want to talk about? Uh, one last thing, or yeah, uh, I started another uh, anime series as well um, called Inspector. I'll give you the plot line. It's uh, so uh, Iwunaga Kotoko became the god of wisdom to the supernatural beings and spends her days solving problems for them. However, the boy who she fell head over heels with. Sakuragawa Kuro is someone that is feared by all supernatural character creatures. The two of them face various mysterious incidents involving the supernatural in this love romance mystery series. This was one that that seems to be kind of one of like the bigger series of this season. Um, and it was one that I had heard about, checked out, but because it was more of like the like supernatural kind of like thriller, I didn't really go immediately go for it. But I'm happy that I ended up just kind of checking out the first episode on a whim. Um, but it's not so much of a thriller as it is. It's, it's got a bit of comedy elements in there as well. Um, both the characters are really great, especially the, the girl in the series. So it really like hooked me in right from the get-go. I'm sorry, is this, is, is this a new series or is this one that came out a while ago? This is a new one. Okay. So yeah, it just premiered with this uh, the current season. So it's already like maybe halfway through or something or so. But yeah. Uh, Alex, I'm trying to remember, like when uh, anime's uh, first premiere in Japan, there's a little bit of a release delay, right, here in the States or when it comes on Crunchyroll or anything like that? Um, not necessarily. There are there can be, I think, for some series, but this okay. is simulcast. Okay, so, so, so basically uh, you're kind of watching it, I wouldn't say in real time, but it's like they're not like working or completing like the second season of episodes while you're like just finally watching this. Oh, no, 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 no. This is, I mean, you know, with there may be some sort of delay with getting the English subtitles, but I doubt it's anything more than a day. Okay. And with it being, you know, on Crunchyroll, it says, you know, I'm cast on Saturdays. Yeah. I mean, the only thing you really, that's really going to, that would really be delayed would be 
um, English dubs. And you being such a purist, you're like, yeah, I don't need no English dubs. English dubs are so terrible too, or they can be. I was my friend was showing me an English dub video of um, Demon Slayer, and it reminded me why I don't like watching English dubs. Like some of the characters, they they did pretty well on, and then like the main character who's obviously going to be talking more than anyone else sounds awful not to you know shit on the voice actor but after watching it in you know subtitled and then hearing that it just felt completely wrong yeah it's interesting with as far as watching movies and tv shows made in other countries i will almost always go subtitled for live action but for animes oddly enough i have no problem watching them dubbed and i'm not sure why I mean, that's kind of also, I grew up watching the English dub, so I am kind of used to just the hokiness of how the English actors kind of do it. But, you know, it's like, okay, if you're going to be doing a good series, just put a little bit more effort into it. Because um, I've seen some really bad dubs. There are oh, bad yeah. dubs yeah. out there. I mean, that's how I started getting to anime, too, was watching English dubs. I watched the English dub for um, Full Metal Alchemist, uh, Samurai Champloo. So I watched the English dubs for those, and those are fine. But the other thing why I watch subtitled is literally like English dubs come out much later than subtitled. So if I'm trying to keep up on what's currently popular and what's currently airing, I have no choice but to watch subtitled. And I kind of prefer it. Some people may complain that they don't want to read a, a TV show, but it's really not a problem. Mm, cool. Awesome. Do you have anything else? No. Other than that, just been starting to listen to a little bit more death metal music just checking out new bands and whatnot but other than that that's about it Alrighty, so i'll i'll go next uh knives out came out on blu-ray last week i picked it up watched it for a second time i uh, showed katie for the first time this movie's really good it's great actually um and it, i know that whodunits work well on rewatches because one of the fun things about whodunits is that the first time you watch it you don't know what's going on you're trying to guess everything that's happening yeah. And then the second time you watch it, you know all the ins and outs, you know what was going on, you know which character was where, you know what, what they were all doing. So it's interesting watching a whodunit from beginning to end and the second time knowing everything. Uh, this one, though, I think especially works well on rewatches. For one thing, it is very well written. The characters are all very colorful. It's very entertaining. But the nonlinear way that the movie decides to tell the story and the, the movie really is just just about the way that it gives you information. It reveals a little bit more, a little bit more, and it keeps turning itself on its head. And watching it the, from the beginning the second time, mm -hmm. knowing, oh, this is going to look like this, but really it's going to be, this is going on. It's just, I, I don't know, it's a, it's a fascinating rewatch and a very quick movie to, to, to sit through. I mean, I know like when they were marketing this movie, like one of the big things they were advertising constantly about this were all the Easter eggs, like to get, you know, enough people interested. It's yeah. Like, come and watch it again and again and see if you can catch all the Easter eggs. So, you know, Rain Johnson kind of knew what he was doing when he was crafting this. He had all these details with his production designers, his uh, cinematographer, and just his whole team just to like, okay, we got to make sure this is orchestrated very well. So it is. Yeah. The callbacks in this movie are just fantastic. The setups and the payoffs, or not even just setups and payoffs, just things that reference other things from earlier in the movie. I mean, there's a scene when a character throws a baseball out of a window and if you notice that, it keeps that baseball keeps popping up in important bits later on. It's just it's just fascinating the way that the movie is just put together. So is it so well crafted? Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, I would absolutely recommend Knives Out. If you've seen it once, I would recommend checking it out again. Um, another one, I guess, getting into murder mysteries. I'll get into uh, another murder mystery I watched recently, which was Memories of a Murder from 2003, directed by our boy Bong Joon Ho. Oh. Uh, just yeah. So, a quick synopsis: uh, 1986, the uh, the body of a young woman is found uh, brutally raped and murdered. Two months later, a series of rapes and murders commences under similar circumstances, and in a country that has never known such crimes, the dark whispers about a serial murderer grows louder. A special task force is set up in the area with two local detectives, joined by a detective from Seoul, who were, who requested to be assigned to the case. So, this was, I believe, it. If it wasn't Bong Joon-ho's first movie, it was one of his first movies. It was it was, it was a very early movie of his. Yeah, I believe this is his second movie. Have either of you guys seen uh, Memories of a Murder? Uh, no, no we have not. 
okay, it's, I know it came out before Zodiac, but this movie is Zodiac. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, okay. It's 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 impossible. Like like if you if you're familiar with Zodiac, and I feel like you know it, more North American audiences are obviously familiar with Zodiac and David Fincher than they are with Memories of a Murder. But the 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 two movies do very similar things in very similar ways. They almost feel the same. Like, there's a case to be made that Zodiac is basically a remake of Memories of a Murder, even though I know it isn't. <laughs> um but what what carries this movie is the uh the main character is the the two well i guess i I guess really three detectives following in the case of this the serial killer the whole idea of the movie is that basically it's a small country where this kind of stuff doesn't happen so when it does the 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 authorities are extremely ill-prepared to deal with it and it's about these uh detectives botching everything up and just not being overwhelmed and not knowing how to catch this guy. So question, is it more of a comedy thriller than it is like just like a suspense dark thriller? I mean, there, as, as with any of Bong Joon-ho's movies, there's uh, an element of comedy to it. The movie is not a comedy. It's, it's a very, it's a very dark kind of a downer movie, but it's got kind of this wry, dark sense of humor. Like, you know, mo- mo- most of his movies, if you've seen Parasite, it's kind of this a similar tone to Parasite, something like that, where it's like yeah, it's, it's kind of it's like almost Hitchcockian in its its humor. It's like it is it's playing with the audience. You know that you really shouldn't be laughing at this, but you can't help yourself. It's like there is a lot of gallows humor, but the movie itself is a very engaging, tense movie, and it's just it's, it's frustrating because these characters they they think they know what to do they, one of them has this this thing that he does where he says oh i can just look a guy in the eyes and i know whether he's guilty or not and as he realizes he's in over his head he's realizing that his kind of homebrewed ways of of doing things just don't work in this situation so if you can get your hands on it i know it used to be on amazon prime i don't think it is anymore but if you can get your hands on this movie i would uh, highly recommend checking it out if you're a fan of bong joon ho yeah, I feel like I, I want to kind of investigate a little bit more of his filmography because other than just Snowpiercer and Oksha, like I don't know a lot of this guy's body of work. So if this is his second film, I'm like, okay, I'm curious now. Interesting thing about Bong Joon-ho is that I, I discovered him through The Host and I loved that movie in college before knowing anything else that he had made, uh, which is the monster movie that he made. And uh, it's been kind of interesting seeing him develop as a more and more mainstream well-known director until he until he won best picture with parasite because i remember we've seen you know in college like oh man this, this movie the host you got you gotta check it out it's, it blows your mind and now it's like snowpiercer oak jet like everybody knows him now which is great mm-hmm. yeah he's becoming a household name now which is kind of cool uh, and then the last movie i want to talk about is the tree of life yay my favorite terrence malick film you know what? It's 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 mine too now. It didn't used to be, but it is now. Really? I mean, you kept saying like I think Days of Heaven was like your favorite of his. Right. So so historically, Days of Heaven has been my favorite. A Hidden Life recently surpassed that. Rewatching Tree of Life though now, I'm I'm convinced this this is Terrence Malick's masterpiece. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's allegorical, abstract, but it's not it's not alienating. The movie is very relatable, even though there isn't really kind of like a solid story that's that's what i liked about a hidden life was that he took this kind of fanciful dreamlike cinematography and editing and he applied it to a really grounded story but tree of life has that in it but it also has all this other stuff on top of it you know the the the, the timeline jumping the creation of the world kind of this afterlife stuff and i think the movie's style works for this kind of a story perfectly and and anybody who doesn't connect to this movie, I completely get it. I just think that that out of most most of his movies, this is probably the one that has the most potential to connect with a wide range of people in very different ways. I think each person gets something different out of this movie, and you connect with it in a very different way because there is a lot going on, and, and there is no just one reading to it. But it is a very relatable movie. Uh, this time was my first time watching the extended cut that Criterion Collection put out, that which is just over three hours long. Well, wasn't like the original like supposed to be almost five hours? Like the original original cut out there somewhere. There's a five hour cut that Terrence Malick cut down. Uh, this is basically his ultimate version. Well, it's not his ultimate version of the movie. He he said in interviews that he doesn't want people to think of oh one version is better than the other. He just wants people to think of the extended version as 
another version of the movie. In fact, when they were making this, I remember reading about how he originally tried to do something where they were going to use the technology in the Blu-ray to put together an experimental thing where every time you put the movie in, it strung together the clips in a slightly different order. So ah. there is no like one definitive cut. It's every time you get a slightly different version of the movie, but they weren't able to make it feasibly work. So he just basically did this version. Joe, is that absolutely true? Like that was like his intention. It was when he when, when they were putting out the Criterion Collection Blu-ray. It was one thing they were looking into doing and trying to do, and they couldn't quite figure it out. So he thought, oh, okay, because he didn't want people to think, oh, the extended edition is my cut. Because when he put out the, th the theatrical cut, he put out the version that he wanted to make. And when he got another crack at it, he thought, well, there's a lot of other stuff I didn't put in there that would have been nice to put in there. So let's let's put together another version of the movie. So they're like, just you know, you know, pick pick your choice whether you feel like sitting there for. You know, two hours or three hours, he's got you covered. Honestly, that just that kind of concept of using the Blu-ray to do that kind of excites me. I almost want to see films like be done now in a way where it's like you could mishmash like the order of sequences and scenes around, and it would still give you a different experience. It wouldn't like be so convoluted and so like jarring that it just leaves you hanging, but it could still work. That that there's a market there, Joe. And if you're going to do that for a movie, like Tree of Life is the movie to do that for. It is. Uh, as far as extended cut versus theatrical cut, my recommendation is whatever you feel like. The extended cut is great. And I, I think moving forward, if I have the time or if I feel like it, I'll probably end up throwing the, the, extended, the extended cut on. But if I just feel like a, you know, a quick two-hour Tree of Life movie, I'll just throw on the theatrical cut and I'll feel like I'm not missing anything. There's a lot more stuff thrown in there but it's not like oh you're you're missing super important scenes or i can't believe they cut this scene it's just kind of more life stuff with the 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 kids there's some more stuff with sean penn uh it's just more of it and it, it doesn't it doesn't to me at least it didn't feel like it dragged the movie on i wasn't able to, to watch it all in one sitting so maybe that helped mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh yeah I, I i feel like both cuts are equally worthwhile it just depends on how long you want to be sitting there Honestly, I think there should be some kind of a Terrence Malick challenge out there. It's like if you can watch all of his movies in a row and not budge from your seat or fall asleep, you you win like this grand prize or something like that to get a free Blu-ray of a Terrence Malick film. <laughs> that might be a little bit much even for me, who's uh, who, who who loves Terrence Malick. I know. You're such a purist when it comes to it. So it's like, if that's too much for you, yeah, that, we're probably pushing the bar there. Alex, have, have you seen Tree of Life? You know, I started it a long time ago. I think it was back in college. I had started watching it and then I just turned it off. I was like, this is this is too much for me right now. Too when it got, yeah, when it got to <laughs> yeah, the dinosaurs, like, he was like, I'm kinda done. No, it wasn't even I don't think it was even that. Like I barely got into it. Yeah. Oh really? I you know, I think it was mostly just like I just wasn't in the mood for it at the time. Tree of Life's been something I want I want to watch for a long time, but I just haven't put aside the time because I'm just I just been waiting for the right moment to watch it because i want to like it so i'm waiting till i'm in the mood to actually like sit down and watch and give it like it you know the proper attention that i feel like i really want to give it yeah i, I recommend if you decide to do it just stock up on as much red bull and coffee <laughs> and just something to keep you awake for the next few hours because yeah i mean i'm into that kind of stuff if it's really quiet and really slow that's my thing okay so I don't think I'm going to have too much trouble getting through it once I finally sit down. Gotcha. Anyway, uh, yeah, that that will do it for uh, for my movies. And with that, let's move on to our main topic, which is War Games. War Games. This computer company is coming out with these amazing new games in a couple of months. And I want to play those games. Wow. What? We got something. He found the right code word to play the game. We're in. But it was the wrong computer. Shall we play a game? How can I ask you that? How about mobile thermal nuclear war? Fine. All right. War Games is a 1983 American Cold War science fiction film written by Lawrence Lasker and 
Walter F. Parks, and directed by John Badham. The film follows David Lightman, played by Matthew Broderick, a young hacker who unwittingly accesses War Operation Plan Response, also known as Whopper, which is a United States military supercomputer originally programmed to predict possible outcomes of nuclear war. Lightman gets Whopper to run a nuclear war simulation, believing it is a computer game. The computer, now tied to the nuclear weapons control system and unable to tell the difference between simulation and reality attempts to almost start world war three so this was my pick a flick this was one i had not seen before and the reason the big reason why i wanted to see this is because it is actually a movie referenced in ready player one the book version not the movie version the book um, it's actually one of the games that the character uh wade watts uh has to complete in i guess the uh game for the Easter egg that they're having to find. And the scene that they uh, have to play is actually in the arcade. We're first introduced to David Lightman, who is um, just basically just playing this version of um, Galaga. And then this kid comes up and has to take his place. So, you know, that's what was referenced in uh, the book. But I, I always kind of was curious, like, okay, I've never seen the movie, and it got nominated for three Oscars. So I'm like, well, let's let's give it a shot. Well, here's my question: uh, as far as the Ready Player One goes, are you are you currently reading Ready Player One, or had you read it before and were interested in the movie just just, just getting around to it now? I mean, I had read the book a long time ago, um, just at the time I guess when the movie was coming out. So I remember reading that part, and I was like, okay, well, when I have time, I'll revisit it because at the time I just did not seem interested so and I kind of thought you know what it, this seems kind of like a, a movie we could watch it's one of those interesting cult classics so yeah all right so uh Alex had, had you seen this before I had not no I've not seen it and what were your thoughts I thought it was pretty good uh the the concept is pretty interesting and I, I like I like the idea of you know hacking into NORAD's main computer just on accident i thought that was kind of cool a little kind of i guess campy maybe that's not really the right word but i would say it's campy yeah uh, okay. that was actually one of the things i wanted to talk to you guys about because like this was made at the time when computers were still kind of a new thing to the market you kind of like learn looking at it, it's like it's still like those dot matrix kind of computers with like the the black screens the minimal text like we don't it's not very well like elaborate that what we're so used to and what most uh kids are growing up with these days this is like this feels dated like you look back and it's like oh my gosh yeah I, those were computers back then that was the standard technology and you know l looking at it and watching it there is a level of comedy in this where it's like as as tense and as like suspenseful as this premise could be th there's parts where you can't really take it too seriously because that 80s soundtrack starts coming up and it's so whimsical and light even though Matthew Broderick's trying to get away from the FBI agents and there's the guard who's trying to hit on the secretary you know asking if she plays tennis it's like okay there's there's a certain level here where it's like you're gonna just have fun with this yeah, you know what's in interesting about that too is they originally had a different director. Yes, I was actually going to do talk about that, Martin Brest. Um, yeah, so he was yeah he was originally going to shoot in a more much darker, more thriller uh, type of a movie before John uh, Badham took over. Yeah, he actually uh, uh, Martin Brest actually was only hired to do the project for like twelve days, and then the studio sacked him. Um, and here's a fun story, actually. Um, John Bedham, when he actually came on set to the soundstage to shoot this scene, everybody was like tense because they all thought, okay, our, the director just got fired. Are we all next? So to lighten the mood, actually, he made Matthew Broderick and all the other actors have like a, a relay race around the studio. And he said, <laughs> all right, uh, we're all going to have a race. And the one who loses has to sing in front of everybody. And of course, John Bedham, who's like, you know, a, a good director lost and he uh, sang uh, the happy wanderer to everybody in the studio. So, so we already kind of get an idea for this guy, this, this director, John, who is, he just, he knows how to make actors and people on the set feel at home. And it's like, yeah, I think that's kind of like what shines in the movie is just like that lightness. <laughs> uh, so this is my third time watching this movie. I, I love this movie. Um, you love it? 
I love this movie. It's such it's such a great movie. Every time I watch it, I give it four stars out of five. And every time I'm on the I'm on the verge of bumping it up. <laughs> really? Is it is it all those sweeping shots of the the Whopper computer that just like you like, or is it just uh, is it the flying dinosaur that happens? halfway through it's it's one of those concept movies mm-hmm. that just works with its concept it's, it's it's simple it's just kid hacks into a nuclear computer almost starts world war three mm-hmm. and it's simple it's perfect for the time for the 80s with the, uh, computers and technology changing with the history with the cold war and, and nuclear threats you know being in the past and everything it's just perfect mixture all, all these great kind of 80s movie cliches but it just works. Um, Matthew Broderick is great in it. Ali Sheedy is great in it. You, 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 they're, they're prime 80s teen stars in, in this very nerdy movie. I love how nerdy it is. <laughs> I wonder how many how many kids watching this movie today are confused by the, the fact that he uses telephones to hack into the computer. Well, that's like yeah. another reason why I was like, I kind of feel like that's a reason why this kind of movie has kind of gone to the wayside a little bit is because it's, it's so dependent on the technology as being part of the story. And the technology then was as advanced as it was. But today mm-hmm. it's like, it's we're, we have surpassed that. So I can see why not too many people are familiar with this because it's like, they can't relate to like, this is what computers are like. This is what hacking was like. This is like, why would you have to go through all this effort? But that's kind of like what you had to do. And, you know, it's just kind of a nice little film, Joe. I think you're right, where you actually can actually step back in time and be like, this is what the 80s was like. This is what having a desktop was like. This is what floppy disks were like. It's, it's, it's one of those movies that personifies the 80s. It's a, it's a time capsule. It's a, it's a sort of movie where if they made it today, it would be an incredibly different movie. And you, you couldn't make this movie today. It's... no. I think when a lot of people think of the 80s, they think of the the neon lights and all the crazy over-the-top clothes and all that kind of stuff. But this kind of movie shows what the 80s actually felt like and looked like. And, and the, these these characters feel like, like... Like Matthew Broderick feels like a kid out of an 80s movie just transplanted, transplanted into a very nerdy version of what the 80s was. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I actually want to talk a little bit about this. So this movie was actually before Matthew Broderick was a huge international star. This was like prior to Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Um, and Joe, you mentioned you think he does a solid job as playing David Lightman, this you know believable kid who, you know, if he was to pull this off, yeah, this this is kind of how you would act. Um, in watching his performance, I'm kind of glad something like Ferris Bueller came around because I keep looking at Matthew Broderick and like this guy, he's kind of I'm I'm surprised he made it past the audition. He's so weird and nerdy, <laughs> but maybe that's exactly what they were looking for. So, by the way, I should um, give a disclaimer that uh, all the stuff about saying that the movie feels like the '80s. Um, I wasn't actually around for the '80s. I'm just saying th- that's the feeling the movie gave me. I was I was born in the early '90s, so I, I I'm just I'm just saying based on the feeling and the the style of the movie, I it, it feels like what I think you know. It's a different version of the 80s. Joe, are you sure that you weren't in this movie? Because I know it's set in Seattle, um, part of it. true. (laughs) You could have been one of those kids in the background, you know, with the tall, like, you know, weird coif hair with the weird polo shirt going on. You must have been that kid. You must have been. I, I I wish I wish I was, but I I I I, I, I wouldn't even I wouldn't even be be bored for like another like what eight years after this movie came out. <laughs> if Joshua tricks them into launching an attack, it'll be your fault. My fault. The whole point was to find a way to practice nuclear war without destroying ourselves, to get the computers to learn from mistakes we couldn't afford to make. Except that I never could get Joshua to learn the most important lesson. What's that? Futility, that there's a time when you should just give up. What kind of a lesson is that? Did you ever play tic-tac-toe? Yeah, of course. But you don't anymore. No. Why? Because it's a boring game. It's always a tie. Exactly. There's no way to win. The game itself is pointless. But back at the war room, they believe you can win a nuclear war there can be acceptable losses. So I kind of want to delve into this a little bit. So we, we were talking about how this movie has a very interesting pacing to it and a very lightness to it. 
Um, but it's without to say that this movie taps into some morality behind nuclear warfare and, you know, the possibility of total annihilation. There comes a part where I think uh, maybe we should give a spoilers warning uh, right now because we kind of will dabble into that. So at one point, Matthew Broderick and his girlfriend actually come across this island where the uh, creator of the Whopper computer um, is still alive. Everyone thought he was presumed dead or gone. But he was there living his existence kind of like as an unknown. And he's he's like the only person who can actually help and stop this thing. But he's like, I don't want to because mankind is kind of always been pushing itself to this limit. And it's only a matter of time before we become extinct like these dinosaurs. And it's kind of like there's a very interesting scene where it's uh, he's projecting like these old footage films of dinosaurs um, in their prehistoric eras while he's giving this talk. And he's really tapping into this thing like, you know, if we treat uh, nuclear warfare like a game like this, which, you know, the United States and the Soviet Union were doing, then annihilation is inevitable and we just have to accept it. And I don't know, it kind of got deep at that point, as lighthearted as this movie was. So, yeah, that was kind of an unexpected scene for like just an interesting turn it just suddenly took. It's just like, whoa, okay. This is this is actually what we're dealing with here. That was that was a really cool point to bring up, though, and it was very frustrating watching this character at first because you think he's a little kooky. He's like he's flying this uh, uh, pterodactyl on this <laughs> island, yeah, trying to dive yeah. bomb at these kids, and you're like, uh, should we say he's like has a few marbles loose in his head right now, or should we actually be paying attention to him? And he's got some valid things to say. Yeah, to a point. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I don't know where I was exactly going with that. But yeah, that was a really cool scene where it just like it suddenly took a turn and got into something really a lot deeper just because most of the movie up to that point had just been kind of a lot more lighthearted. And then it suddenly got to this point where like, oh, this is this is the stakes that we're really dealing with here. Although there is one thing I kind of think that bothered me about the movie is the fact that Matthew Broderick was just he easily got into like the tourist group and was able to get out oh. of a heavily guarded government facility that way. I mean, yeah, there's, there's points. Where, there's one note I, I saved where it's like, what was uh, the uh, main guy at the, at NORAD who's kind of running Whopper and everything like that. He, he's taken Broderick around and he takes him to his office to kind of question him and whatnot. Dabney Coleman. Dabney Coleman. Yeah. 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 He takes him around to his office and then something happens in the main room. So, the doctor leaves Matthew Broderick in his office alone. After... Unfacilitated, yeah. Yeah, like he's he suspects him of being a Russian spy. And he's just like, I'm just going to leave you here with my computer. That's probably hooked up to like everything. Mm-hmm. You, you, we already know you hacked into our computer from the outside. But let me just leave you here for, <laughs> for like a few minutes unwatched. Yeah. Don't yeah. Watch. Okay, I love this movie. I, I think you guys are giving it a little bit too much credit for that scene where Falcon is being all doom and gloom. Um, it's it's fine. It, it works. It works for the movie. It's it's yeah. it's not even a negative for the movie. I just didn't find it specific, especially deep or anything. Just because I think that's, I think we see that kind of stuff from movies from the seventies and eighties, where a very kind of a nihilistic like humanity is screwing up the planet kind of a thing. Uh, we got that in like the ultimate version of that was Silent Running with Bruce Dern came out in the ten years before, where it's like we're killing the trees and everything. What are we doing? And uh, it's just kind of like, oh, it's just another one of those. Like, is this guy like, humans don't deserve to go on. Oh, but don't yeah. worry. I'll, I'll come around in the end because I'm because I'm humans deserve another chance. I uh, know. I think what just made that scene in particular just kind of stand up for me is just the, the staging of it all. Like, you know, throughout this whole movie, it's been kind of like this uh, chase action suspense thriller where, you know, Matthew Broderick is trying to run for his life and just find the source and nobody will believe him. And he's try not to endanger anyone so but then when it gets to here it's like all right this guy's showing a old footage of dinosaurs in his study on this island and kind of giving like this whole like thing like we will be like these dinosaurs i'm like oh okay uh i was not expecting that kind of a turn so maybe not so much like oh we give this scene a lot of credit but it's just it stood out that way oh yeah very very well staged yeah they get to the island and they find them and you think oh great you know they found the guy who made the computer He's, he's, of course, going to be on their side. And then it takes that turn. And you're just like, wait a second. Where are we going with this now? 
And also, I just like the way it was shot as well. Um, the DP for this, um, he got actually nominated for an Oscar as well for this movie. So his use of lighting for that scene, using the projector light and just the uh, lamps in that room, and even just like, I guess, like the war room as well, is just like the, the way that's all set up in the soundstage and everything's lit. It, it felt real. It felt like, oh, this is kind of cool. And then especially at the end, that finale, where all those blinking lights are happening, it just is kind of, I thought that was like the coolest thing. Yeah, there are, there are a few scenes that stand out um, as being really well shot. Uh, those those ones you mentioned, yeah, definitely in particular, I, especially with that, with the projector on the uh, the doctor there. Um, I thought that was, that was a really cool. So uh, Debney Coleman is in this movie. Mm-hmm. Debney Coleman is also in a movie that came out the following year, Cloak and Dagger, which is directed by my main man, Richard Franklin. Yeah, I knew you were going to drop that in somehow. <laughs> it's another uh, 1980s movie starring a kid with espionage and danger and all that kind of stuff. So I just want to throw that in there. Everyone should watch Cloak and Dagger. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. That's here's uh, two. That's a set, two cents of Cloak and Dagger with De- Debney Coleman, who's uh, apparently was cranky during Cloak and Dagger and didn't want to be in the movie. <laughs> Look, it just added to the character, you know. Just, just per- <laughs> speaking of cranky, uh, did anyone kind of get excited when Michael Madsen w- appeared in the first scene in this movie? Okay, I like I said, this is my third time watching this movie. That this this time was my first time noticing that he was in the movie. I, I, didn't, I didn't notice him the first two times. I was kind of like trying to second guess myself. I'm like, no, that, 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 right? No, no, that him? Oh I did the God. exact same thing. When he yeah. showed up this time, I was like, that guy looks a lot like Michael Madsen. And then my brain was like doing math. Like, wait, could that be Michael Madsen? Like, he kind of like, looks it, like him. He sounds like him. He acts like him. No. But they had, they had one, he had one close up where I was like, no, that's not him. And then I looked it up later. I'm like, oh, yeah, it was totally De- uh, Michael Madsen. I mean, definitely it's a very young guy. Um, and I don't know. That's another scene that I kind of thought was is interesting. It kind of sets the tone of everything in this movie. That opening like a uh, hook scene where we have these uh, two operators who kind of like are taking over the night shift. And then they get this uh, red coat alert and they're like, all right, we have to follow protocol. We have to turn our keys and we have to launch these missiles. And then one of them is like saying, wait. Something doesn't seem right. Why would they make us do this? All missiles enabled. Minus 30. Get me wing command post on your direct line. That's not the correct procedure, Captain. Try SAC headquarters on the HF. That's not the correct procedure. Screw the procedure. I want somebody on the goddamn phone before I kill 20 million people. T minus 20. I got nothing here. They might have been knocked out already. Right. On my mark. Rotate launch keys to launch. Roger, ready to go to launch. 14. Yeah, War Games is a great movie. That opening scene is a great scene. Like oh, it's, it's, it's 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 up there on my list of favorite opening scenes for movies. If you go in knowing this is about Matthew Broderick hacking into uh, a computer, that 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 opening scene is, is is kind of interesting because it's it has no characters that you see later on in the movie, no characters that that you know of. It's a very tense situ- situation, a very relatable situation, as in like it's it's very human. You get to this guy, why this guy wouldn't turn the key, and is he going to? Is he not going to? Should he even? Uh, it's like you know nothing about these characters, but in the span of just a few minutes, they tell the the movie tells a great story with just little characters doing their jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very tense. I mean, actually, if you were to kind of like take that out of the movie and just make it as like a little short film, it actually is a, you know, a self-standing short film. It is, yeah. yeah. There was one thing I wanted to point out and something that, for whatever reason, caught my eye during that, and it's a weird thing. When, they, when they're walking into the little office there behind like the huge door, there's a sign on the wall that I thought was very, uh, very weird. And it says, anyone urinating in this area will be discharged. <laughs> like, is this a problem that they have, that they've had before? They might have just had that one guy who just, like, you know. Who screwed it up for everybody. Screwed it up for everybody. And it's like, now we have to put that signage. <laughs> you know, they put the sign up. They, they had to deal with it before. <laughs> Joe, Joe, can you actually write a short film about the guy who is responsible for why that sign is there in the first place. Like, just like a little kind of like excerpt, but like, okay, you know, this is protocol, but let's follow this guy who got drunk on the job. And just, and just peeing in the nuclear launch. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
<laughs> Maybe that's like the reason why they yellow code or something like that. We can call it. <laughs> that's a working title for this. It's called yellow code. Gosh. Um, Tencent Dark versus Comedic and Light. Uh, uh, what do you guys think about the tone of this movie? I think it plays around with it very well. It's got its moments, you know, kind of like we were talking about with the Doctor on the Island. And then it's got the moments of, you know, just the fun kind of chase scenes of Matthew Broderick escaping and, you know, getting out of the uh, the room he's being held in. So, yeah, I, I would kind of like to see what this would have been with the original director doing it. I would have like it would be interesting to see it much darker and much fall into more it's more of the like thriller and suspense genres yeah i'm actually kind of a little bit right there with you alex i'm kind of a little i wouldn't say like torn with this movie but a little half and half with like you know what it's not a bad experience watching this movie with like you know how it switches back and forth between tense and then comedy and kind of thinking about it i think if this was done the way that martin breast wanted it originally i can see this movie just bombing at the theaters at the time. A lot of the stuff that this movie is dealing with is like what was on everyone's radar at the time and people were afraid of like, okay, who is a spy? You know, are we gonna be on the brink of annihilation? I know like we have a lot of like just entertainment and distractions right now, but heck, we could hack into something and this could set off a lot of things. You know, having enough comedy in here kind of helps you come back to reality and realize this is just a movie. And, you know, I kind of wish I could have gotten something a little bit more serious and more intense, but I I have to say I, I enjoyed it. I think it's worth watching. And like I said, Joe, you kind of comment on this. It is like a time capsule piece of the 80s. And I think that's what I kind of got the biggest thrill out of is just looking at all those references. And this is like what life was like back then. And it's a good movie to kind of just like put in and just be like, you know what? This is what it was like 50 years ago. Or, sorry, 40 years ago. Yeah, I think and a, a darker version of this movie would be interesting to watch. Mm-hmm. But I, I'll i be honest. I like this movie. I, I think the ideal version of this movie is as it is. Because I, I, I like the fact that it is kind of... It's it's a tense movie. It deals with some very real issues. It's also just kind of like a fun romp with Matthew Broderick running around. It's got the science fiction element with the chatting with the computer and the back and forth with Whopper. And I, I, I like that kind of adventuresome, lighthearted tone to this movie. And I think I think making it a little bit darker would have been interesting for a different version of this movie. But I think ultimately I would have enjoyed this one more uh, as, as, as it is. Uh, talking about the fact that it was meant to be a much darker movie and then it ended up getting turned into a lighter movie reminds me of Another movie that deals with nuclear annihilation as almost like a farce, which is Dr. Strangelove, which mm-hmm. also was originally conceived to be a straightforward thriller by Stanley Kubrick. And in over the course of writing the movie, he and a uh, guy who he was writing with, with came up with all these comedical situations and were just kind of joking around and they thought, you know what, let's just, let's just make this a comedy because we've got all these great funny scenes anyway in our heads. Yeah, at the same time, we also want to make a movie that's going to make money and, you know, that's that's always like on everyone's mind. And and didn't Peter Sellers also like, have, was a huge contributing factor to just the comedy in that script? Didn't he get like a writing credit? I'm not sure. I'm pretty uh, sure on set he had a lot of just carte blanche is just like go and do whatever he wants but which 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 is which is interesting considering that stanley kubrick is such a strict you know stick to exactly what i want to do but i i wouldn't be surprised if he let pure sellers have a little bit more leeway with that so one of the the thing i was going to bring up and it was just a little side note is um for the actor playing falcon um they originally wanted stephen hawking to be in the movie as falcon um, Hawking ended up declining after showing a little interest, but they the writers had or directors had a re- still wanted Falcon to be in a like a motorized like wheelchair. But the reason they went against that was because they felt it was going to be too close to uh, Strange Doctor Strange Love. Oh, that's oh, interesting. True. That is interesting. Yeah. Um, I also kind of know like the Doctor's name Falcon is kind of inspired from Stephen Hawking's name as well. So that's the one thing that kind of carried through. That makes okay. sense. 
That's cool. Yeah. No, I'm glad you brought that little trivia up. IMDb credits William H. Macy as being a uh, NORAD officer somewhere in the movie. I was looking for him and I didn't notice him, so I cannot confirm or deny that William H. Macy is actually in this movie. Can I also just say that Barry Corbin, the guy who plays the general in this movie, is a hoot to watch. <laughs> yes. Him just like literally just like throwing all these one-liners and I'd piss on a drinking... spark plug if I think it help. <laughs> <laughs> and him like eating like what cashews and drinking Dr. Pepper. It's like on the side. I'm like, this is so 80s like US general. Love it. Yeah. He I mean, there were parts where he seemed a little bit too lighthearted for the moment, but he was great. <laughs> no, he he knew when to switch it on and switch it off. And I think that's kind of was a good just balance of the movie in general. Mm-hmm. What what did you guys think of Whopper himself? As as far as a, I mean, he it's probably it's probably the most sci sci fi thing in this movie in this in this science fiction movie. Uh, do you think it was a little bit too outlandish, or do you like the way it was presented? Well, Whopper itself is a little bit extreme, but I believe that the U.S. actually had computers doing exactly that. I mean, honestly, the only thing I was thinking about every time they said Whopper was Burger King. So yeah, yeah. literally I was like, okay, I need to get through this movie and I'm just going to go to the drive-thru because <laughs> dang it. Oh yeah, there's Grubhub. I forgot about that. Uh, you don't even have to go anywhere. You can stay in home. I, I know. It's the 21st this, century. Oh my gosh, this is Ready Player One. Anyway, uh, you guys ready to go to final thoughts? I guess we can. Um, Anything else you wanted to bring up, Nate? Uh, I guess if anything, the one thing I'd say is don't eat raw corn. Joe, why is oh, corn? Yeah. <laughs> why does corn keep showing up in all these movies that we're reviewing? It's, I don't know it, why. We are we, we are we are no longer film illiterates. We are uh, watching movies where people eat corns. So, Children of the Corn should be the next film we discuss. Then, right? Does anybody eat corn in Children of the Corn? Well, they they turn people into corn husks, or they do something. I, I it's been a while since I've seen that movie. I need to revisit. They run it through corn. They like live in corn yeah. fields. But yeah, for some reason, like this, the mother just makes everyone eat raw corn. I'm like. What a weirdo. There's a podcast out there. Uh, I think it's called the Exploding Helicopter Podcast, where they just they talk about every movie that has a scene where a helicopter explodes and they like analyze those scenes. We should do that, but just for scenes just for movies where there's a field of corn. <laughs> or corn is somehow used as a plot device <laughs> or something that just moves the story along. Like in Sleepwalkers, there's a scene with corn. <laughs> or uh, Troll 2. <laughs> Oh no. <laughs> we need to watch Troll 2. We do need to watch Troll 2. All right. All right. All right. This is this is this is getting out of hand. I'm going to give my uh my final thoughts. I I love War Games. I think it's a a great movie. Once again, it's a time capsule of 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 a movie. Matthew Broderick is having a lot of fun in it. Ali Sheedy. These these are 80s names in most nerdy mainstream 80s movies you'll probably end up watching. Uh I think it's a lot of fun. It's got, it touches up on timely topics for its time. And uh, yeah, I, I'll probably end up watching it again sometime in the future. Yeah, I think for this being my first time seeing it and uh, trying to see how it tied in with Ready Player One or why it was even used in the story of Ready Player One, I can see why. This is definitely a film that just has 80s soaked all over it. It's like, this is like, it has the technology, it has the little like gimmicks and the little things the music the soundtrack the lightheartedness but also just the dark tones that this goes with and at a time when you know we had this you know technology of you know computers and the internet and hacking into things it it plays with those uh elements very well for its time and if anything like you know we've advanced quite a bit since then and i think this is just a good movie just to look back on and say huh that's what they came up with last time i enjoyed it it's fun you know as much as we talked about maybe like more of the serious aspect of it the the majority of it is really lighthearted and enjoyable to watch um so it's not something that you're going to get too bogged down with um the i love the way it handled technology in the film um you know well this you know technology at the time um with the writers actually talking to real hackers and and people at the time who were very knowledgeable at that stuff um, to you know, different points where uh, the actor for Falcon was actually the voice of the um, Whopper computer. That's one thing I did remember. Yeah, I was like, oh, yeah. they sound similar. Yeah, because they they just had him read sentences in reverse 
to get them more like monotone cut and dry that is uh, so cool yeah so it's a yeah it's a cool movie it's um surprisingly an influential one in u.s history because it actually changed u.s policy after ronald reagan watched the movie oh really yeah he watched the movie and so he and then was talking with um high, high level military generals and guys and brought up the question of can someone actually do this and so they actually like because of this movie the u.s got much more into cybersecurity. for an influential influ- as influential as that is um, the movie still, you know, like it's lighthearted. It's fun and it's enjoyable to watch. It's not doesn't. It's not one that's going to leave really much of a lasting impression on me. But you know, it's one you can definitely turn on like pretty much any time and get a kick out of it. Can I just say I'm actually really appreciative that Alex, you brought your A game and did your research for this movie because yeah. that is actually yeah, this is your this is your moment to shine, man. This is cool. <laughs> yeah, I watched I watched a couple of videos on this, so I got a bunch of different random facts. <laughs> I, I really like that. That's kind of like I was like, who's gonna be the big nerd about this movie? Uh, it's gonna be Joe. It's gonna be me. But no, Alex, you you came up. You you brought your A game. Congrats, yeah, man. man. When well, Alex digs that... deep, he digs. Yeah. He digs really deep, deep into that technology. Speaking of digging into technology, do you know there's actually a guy in that big whopper set piece actually programming on a computer and just like when there's like give us uh, this and he was like typing inside that giant machine so oh interesting yeah yeah there's a guy in there (laughs) that'll do for this episode of the film illiterates podcast uh you can find us on filmilliterates.com or youtube.com slash filmilliterates uh nate where can people find you all right well you can find me here on this podcast with these two guys i'm also uh trying to get back on letterbox record my films and i'll be at nathan underscore stone underscore films at there as well as at instagram alex um you can find me all watch all of our old uh film literates episodes on filmliterates.com other than that you can find me on letterboxd under half scrim Uh, i'm also under the same name on rate your music if you catch you want to catch up on some of the death metal i've been listening to other than that, I'm also on Twitter at Alex D. Patton. And you can find me uh, on Twitter at Film Illiterates and on Litterbox.com slash film underscore illiterate. And uh, we don't have the next episode planned out yet, so just stay tuned for whenever we uh, come out with that and keep watching movies and keep it easy.